0: It's the law that empowers the Christian. It's called the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You see, the law of sin works in you as a power source. It is the power source. The energy of the unbeliever. I don't care how religious you are. If you are not, say, the Spirit of Christ is not in you and there is no energy towards God, it is energy towards you as we talked about last night, and your Riterion theology. Before I begin tonight and announce the text, I just want to say what our brother prayed is what I'm preaching for. I'm preaching that you may know. That you may know where you stand in Christ or not in Christ. But you'll know. That is the aim of these days. I, my memory was triggered and uh, Brother Jason's comments that this is a celebration of the ten years of this church. I think that had been mentioned to me when uh, preliminary discussions were being initiated about me coming. And I thought, wow! <laughs> this Gospel is the cornerstone and should be of this church. And that is where we're returning tonight. To the laying of the cornerstone, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now some of you may have wondered if you were here last night, why that message? It's such a celebration. You're even going to be more puzzled by tonight if you're looking for some kind of celebratory remembrance, reoccurring of our, of the history that's not what i'm here for i'm here that you who know christ may know that you know and those who think you know christ but don't that you will for some of you who are just guests you're going to feel short changed if this is your only time with us tonight or if you do stay to come tomorrow because the good news is Sundays. That's when the message of the good news comes. And you say, why, Terry? And wait, I'm here to hear it tonight. Well, ask the Apostle Paul why he takes three chapters before he even mentions the good news of Jesus Christ in his magisterial epistle to the Romans. Before we can truly understand the depths of what we sang we need to understand the depths of our problem, the problem of sin. Because sin manifests itself in so varied ways, different faces, different arguments, but ultimately, at its heart, one lie. And that's what I want to address tonight. The text we pray the Lord be pleased to speak to us from. Is from the epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. As you're turning in your Bibles, I want to thank the guests, especially some of you who I know have driven a long ways, like the summers from Corpus Christi, the San Antonio guests. Thank you for being here. You have strengthened me by Your presence, and I mean that sincerely. I am encouraged in the Lord by seeing You again. To those who this is home, thank You for being here and giving me this wonderful opportunity to declare God's Word to you. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. There is therefore now now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now some of your Bibles will stop verse 1 right there. My New King James adds, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of of sin and death. Often we Christians wrongly diagnose our problems. We act much like our physical problems. How we contend and deal with them when we deal with our spiritual problems. We deal with both physical and spiritual problems in the same way. When we have a physical ailment, we act. Like a doctor and self-diagnose and treat our symptoms, don't we? I'm the world's worst about it. I have the white coat syndrome. Do you know what that is? Just seeing a doctor in the white coat terrifies me. I've been known to even pass out at the doctor's office. Don't you repeat that. We have no medical training and yet we play the role and doctor our disorder But what if we're wrong in our diagnosis or wrong in our prescription? Well, it can be serious, if not fatal. It's so easy to look at the spiritual symptoms of loss of joy and say that the problem is your spouse, your children, your church, or your job. If I just didn't have all the stress, my life would be happier. We diagnose the root cause of our joylessness in our situations. But symptoms, physical or spiritual, are never the root cause. Did you hear me? Symptoms, physical, whether it be a headache, whether it be a fever, Or a loss of joy, spiritual depression, a lack of peace. Those symptoms are never the root cause. They're just manifestations of the underlying problem. You can say that they are the fruit. The fruit is never the root. You can trace the fruit back to the root, but they are two different things joylessness, or for that matter, any spiritual digression or symptom is always caused by an underlying problem. And that problem is faith. A problem with faith. Namely, faith in God. I'm telling you, if you are under spiritual distress of any kind today, the Bible's diagnosis of your condition is unbelief. In God. Oh, but preacher, I'm a Christian. I gave my life to Christ. I trusted Him and I've walked with Him now 20 years, 10 years, 30 years. I have faith. Yes, you have faith. But there is a crisis of faith, and your faith, like the disciples, is often polluted, mixed with something other than faith in God alone. It's unbelief. About what he has said about himself and what he has said about sin. That's the root cause of all your problems in your spiritual man. Where do I get this? Well, it's in the first chapter of Romans as Paul is laying the foundation for the necessity of the gospel Romans chapter 1 and verse 25 who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Did you notice it's in the singular? Romans 1.25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, one lie. It's always the same lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So tonight I want us to look at what we either don't know or don't believe about sin. Not the most pleasant topic. We were talking about this earlier. We don't preach on sin enough. It doesn't matter if it's an Arminian or a Calvinistic church or whatever it is. We don't preach on sin enough. And therefore, we don't appreciate the Gospel enough. Every element of our hearts is due to our problem with sin and our problem with sin is twofold. Listen carefully. It is either sin's condemnation or sin's control or both. Another way to say it, our problem is either with the penalty of sin or the power of sin or both. There are people tonight in this room who are in a state of condemnation. You are condemned in the sight of God. You are judged by Him as unworthy of Him. That is a state and problem of sin. Others of you have been delivered from that condemnation, and yet you still experience condemnation. And It's because you don't understand Sin and its remedy, I hope, tonight and by Sunday, that will be thoroughly changed in you. So, let's look at the first issue with sin. The condemnation of sin. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now, present tense, at this moment, and for evermore, for the believer, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if I said, do you all believe that You would all say, Amen. But I'm here to say, as I often say, you believe it here. It's not reality here. You do not know what you know. You know it intellectually, but you don't know it's reality, it's life, it's power. Those of you that struggle with condemnation and are truly His. What is condemnation? It's a legal state. That's all it is. It's a position in a legal realm. We say this way, the criminal is condemned to die. We are saying that in the legal realm, he is guilty of crime and he is sentenced and brought under its penalty. That is the state of condemnation, whether it's jaywalking or it's capital crimes. The transgression of the law, in this case, the law of God, places you in a state of condemnation judgment where God finds you unacceptable and unworthy in His presence. But condemnation is also a state of the mind. We can know that we are condemned and feel condemnation. The criminal condemned to die on death row is conscious of his state. He is often under the shadow and feels the fear, the shame, and the anxiety that His condemned state brings. Who's here tonight? And you feel your condemnation. Whether you're in the legal realm of under God's justice condemned or you just feel it wrongly. But you feel it nonetheless. The text says to the saint of God, that one of the benefits, the chief benefit, of being justified by faith in Christ alone is you've been taken out of the state of condemnation and you've been brought in, not just into an unbiased, a freedom, a liberality. You have been brought into the presence of God Almighty. You have been reconciled to God and now you stand in His righteousness. That is your legal status now. Righteous before God. Accepted in the Beloved. Worthily received. Yes. Worthily received. Not because of you, but because of Him. Not because of what you've done, but because of what He's done for you. There is therefore now and forevermore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are His saint tonight, I want you to be encouraged. Stay with me. If you have not planned to come back tomorrow and Sunday, if you can, please do so. Especially if you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation. Because what I am going to share tomorrow is crucial for saint and sinner alike. There are two competing ways for joy in Christ. One has all the trappings and the allurement of being sound and biblical and right. But it is deadly wrong. And we need to examine that before we get to the only way. To true joy and full assurance in Christ Jesus. So, let's move now and spend most of our time on the control of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Paul says that there are two laws at work. There's only two universally in the spiritual realm. The first is the law of sin and death. That is the law all of us are born into. That's the realm. The sphere of life all of us come into. And that law is dominated and ruled and is manipulated by even the law of God. Religion. Man's way in which to appease his God. And the other realm, the other law is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And so here you and I are born, and it's as certain as gravity that you will be manipulated, used, and abused by the law of sin and death. But as gravity, there are other laws that can be employed and supersede or suspend the law of gravity. Let's suppose... This handkerchief here represents you under the law of sin and death. And all it does is push you down, condemns you until you find yourself one day in hell. Right? Is that true? If you believe the Bible, that is the only explanation of the sinner. But Paul is saying there's another law in A law that comes and as that falls, it catches it and does not allow the law of sin and death to continue its work. It supersedes it, it overrules it, and keeps the sinner from falling into hell and being eternally ruined. What is the law? It's the law that empowers the Christian. It's called the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You see, the law of sin works in you as a power source. It is the power source. The energy of the unbeliever. I don't care how religious you are. If you are not, say, the Spirit of Christ is not in you and there is no energy towards God, it is energy towards you as we talked about last night, and your right theology. Your doctrine of what you believe to be right by your own performance. But the moment one is saved, God overrides that law. And He supplants it with a new force, a new power, a new energy. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus Dear child of God, lay aside the weight and believe the Gospel that Christ is in you. And He is life. And His Spirit is life. And you can live to God's glory and love Him chiefly and thereby enjoy Him. That law is working in you. And Paul says in Romans 8.4 that those who have the law of the sin and death working, they live according to the flesh. He says in Romans 8, 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He brings in this idea of living according to the flesh and He starts to unpack that by contrasting that with life by the Spirit or according to the Spirit. This Spirit, this law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And He shows the difference. And He does that, please listen, he does that so that you believers, believers in Rome, could know for sure that, if, that they are Christians. He contrasts the life of a true child of God, though weak. <laughs> Don't care how weak you are in your faith. This is you. Life according to the Spirit. And the sinner is contrasted by life according to the flesh. Now what does that mean? The words living according to the flesh can be translated live under the flesh. The word according or after comes from a word that means down, in. You get the imagery? To live according to the flesh is to live under the flesh. Dominated, ruled by your appetites. But the appetites are not in control. No, 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 no. It's the law of sin and death. That is simply utilizing your desires and appetites to use them to enslave you. Anyone here enslaved by any fleshly, human, natural appetite? Be careful. I must tread lightly here myself. That doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian, but if that's the characteristic of your life, if that is the consistent path, living according to that, then that means the law of sin and death has the rule and is the energy feeding those lusts, those desires. Without a governor. Without control. Flesh rules over the individual. And again, I want you to hear, Paul is contrasting the true believer against those who think they're believers but not. He says, this is a person according to the flesh is a person in the unrenewed sinful human nature. Those who live according to the flesh, they're living under the realm and the reign of their unrenewed human nature enslaved by sin. Because sin wields a power over all those born of Adam. Every person, every born is controlled by sin. Even Religious people, even good people, as we saw last night with the young rich ruler. Look at Romans chapter 6. Paul has spent a whole chapter explaining why Christians cannot live according to the flesh. It's Romans 6. He says, It's impossible because you're no longer under the dominion of sin. You've been brought into a new realm, a new dominion. You have a new king. His name is Jesus. And He's not a hard taskmaster. No, 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 no. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And so He contrasts and reminds the Romans that they can't just keep living in sin if they're really saved because of this transfer, this transformation from one realm to the other, from the law of sin and death to the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Knowing this, verse 6, That our old man, that unrenewed human nature that you were born with, the person you were, by virtue of coming into this world, being conceived by your parents, that old person has been, was crucified, put to death with Christ. Why? That the body of sin, that means human nature, with all of its bodily and mental appetites might no longer be dominated by sin. That the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. You are not to be under the mastership and rulership of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. I can't read those two verses without remembering a day in the month of May, 1986 when I was at my desk in my office in the church preparing the evening Bible study, Wednesday evening Bible study, and I was preparing the message on those two verses, and as I was studying and looking at them trying to figure out an outline, suddenly, an overwhelming, powerful thought came upon me and I had no argument. I had no rebuttal. I knew it was true. The thought was, This has never happened to you. And I knew it. I knew it. I closed my Bible. I wrote out a letter of resignation right then and there. And I went home to my wife. I can still see her in the kitchen preparing the evening meal. I said to her, what's in this book is not in me. It's not in half the people I'm preaching to. Dear friend... Christianity is not the acquisition of a system of life or rules and regulations or form or formality. It is a transformation from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I have no hope for those whose conversion experience is merely I adopted correct theology. I believe the Bible. If you believe the Bible, the Bible would point you to Christ. And when you meet Christ, you are never the same. Why? Because He supplants the law of sin and death with the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You can no more be what you once were. You can't even sin the same sin the same way. Oh, you can commit the same sins that you committed before you were saved, but you can't sin them in the same way. They don't bring the same joy that they used to and pleasure. You can't sin them without having some sense of godly sorrow and grief. Sooner or later, conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, which you never had until He drew you and called you. No, 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 no. You may be able to sin the same sin, but you'll never sin the same sin in the same way. You've been changed. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. And so therefore he exhorts him in verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the things that fears, I I, I know people will be aggravated by this question, but I've got to get you to think that there are possibilities like this. What grieves me and concerns me right now about our churches is the young people. Namely, Mostly, in the circles at least that I run, most are homeschooled. Most are taught at home biblical doctrine. Mom and dad instill, inculcate Scripture to their children. They go to biblically sound churches where they sit under biblical teaching and preaching and they only adopt what they hear because they believe what they hear And they believe what they hear because they respect the authorities that tell them. But they are void of a transforming encounter with Christ. I'm not saying you have to have a dramatic conversion like some of us have had, but I do insist that this book is saying you have to be changed. And it's a change that takes you out of one realm where one power is the source of your life to another realm where another power is now the source. And when you do not follow that source, the engine just doesn't work properly. It's like trying to put a low octane gas in an engine that requires premium octane. It doesn't feel right. It isn't right. And so, as church history proves, second generation Christians often is the point of where the church begins to depart from the faith. We preach justification by faith and we hail it as we ought to. It is one of those great cornerstones of the Gospel. But friend, there's another cornerstone just as important, and we're not hearing it. And it is the doctrine of regeneration. The new birth where God's supernatural power is imparted that supplants the law of sin and death, which is a supernatural power, and replaces it with the power of heaven, Christ, in you. Sin wields that kind of power that just acquiescence to correct doctrine will never supplant it. It's necessary, yes. Faith has to have the object of truth. How shall they believe unless they hear? Yes, the proclamation of the Gospel is absolutely essential, as Paul will say to the Romans in the 10th chapter. But dear friend, the acquiescence, the acknowledgement, the agreement to the truth, short of... This radical transformation from the law of sin and death to the law of the life of life and the spirit in Christ Jesus, without that, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And so this is what Paul is trying to say, Romans 6:14: "For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law." but under grace. What shall we say? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Don't you know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Let me go back to last night. The rightarian, the young rich ruler's sincere, zealous religious activities, his religious life was sin manifested If not perhaps the chief of all sins. How do I say that? Because he believed God's righteousness was not much more than his own. Because he believed he could achieve it. And that means that God is not as holy as he says he is. What a blasphemy! Before you believed upon Christ into salvation, you were locked tight in the prison of Adam. Adam's penitentiary. Penitentiary was your residence. In Adam you received the penalty of spiritual death. Look at Romans 5.12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, that is Adam, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. I wrote a little illustration. Do you, I don't like reading I want to read this to you if you'll give me permission to do so. I see some heads being nodded. Thank you. I'll take that for the majority. Please listen. I think this illustrates what Paul is trying to say, what I'm trying to say to you about being removed from the state of condemnation. Not only are you removed from sin's condemnation, you're also removed from sin's ruling, dominating, enslaving power. And that's how you know whether you're saved or not. One of the ways. Here's, here's what I wrote. In Adam's penitentiary prison, sin was your warden. Sin was the warden at, in Adam's prison. It ruled your every move. You got up when it told you to do so. You went to bed when it told you. And everything in between, rising and retiring, you did as sin dictated. How long were you sentenced to Adam's prison? You were there until the day of your execution because the penalty of sin is death. You were there awaiting your final judgment condemned to die. Every day you would look out your window and across the road and over to the first rise you would see Emmanuel's land. The sun always shined in Emmanuel's land, but in Adam's prison, darkness reigned even in the middle of the day. You could see people roaming free in the green hills and valleys of Emmanuel. They seemed so happy and you hated them for it. But when but what disgusted you most was the king's city. And why did it bother you? Because you knew that's where the king of light dwelt and you hated him the most. However, one day, an emissary, a messenger from the kingdom of Emmanuel came to visit you. You noticed that the guardians of Adam's prison feared the king's messenger. He made His way to your prison cell and He told you of the King of the fair city and the happy land of Emmanuel. He told you that the King, long before you were born, came into the very prison where you were held. He went to the very inner part of that prison. He was executed for sinners just like you. He said that the king paid your penalty and your freedom. The messenger told you that if you did nothing but simply trusted that what he was telling you was the truth, you would immediately be set free. How? You don't know. But somehow... You knew that what He was telling you was the truth. You knew that you did not deserve such loving kindness, but the story was good news to your ears and you believed. And good to the messenger's word, immediately the door to your cell swung open and the chains that held you tight were loosed and fell off your wrists and ankles. Neither the warden nor his assistant, whose name was the law, could stop you, for you were presented with a new identity. And your new identity had no record against it. As you walked out the front gate, you noticed a prison cemetery with a freshly dug grave. And on the marker, you noticed a strange, a peculiar thing. The grave marker had this inscription Here lies, and you read your name. Here lies. Josh Conway in Adam. Do you see? Christ suffered on our behalf so that we can go free. And faith in Him Comes as the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus transforms you and translates you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. And you're given a new identity. What is your identity? The name of Christ. His righteousness. His record. His obedience. His perfection. And you, with all of your mischievous, even your goodness, all of your sins, And self-righteousness is buried to live no more. And as Paul tells the Colossians, you're no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. Sin's control has been broken. However, not its enticement. Not its power to allure. And that's what I want to deal with for the remainder of our time together. How is it possible, dear brother, that if this is true, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is now your power source, how then could you ever sin? How could you mishandle the holy blood by which we are cleansed? How do you do despite and grieve the Spirit and quench His influence? How's that possible? And it's possible because. You died to sin. But sin didn't die to you. You still carry it. Somehow, in this mortal existence, it's still here. It doesn't rule over me. It's not my power source. It's not my address. It's not the realm in which I live. But it's still very much operating And so, from the Old Testament to the New, we see that the Bible takes great lengths to deal with sin, even in the people of God. The Old Testament discusses at great length sins committed in ignorance versus sins knowingly committed. And so God devises sacrifices to cover sins of ignorance. Have you ever read some of those Old Testament passages? Exodus, Leviticus. And you get to the sins, the sacrifices for the sins of ignorance, and you say, What does that mean? Well, the answer is that sin is so pervasive in our nature that what we think is common, if not sometimes even good, is sin to God. Sin still corrupts everything we do. Everything. How can one commit sin and not know it? It's because it's so much a part of who we are. Still yet, it's not my identity. It's not my realm. It's not my power source. But somehow, it still has a deception called the deceitfulness of sin. And so the writer to the Hebrews has to warn Christians of the deceitfulness of sin. So here I am tonight warning my beloved brethren, beware beware of sin and its deceitfulness. We are so imperfect that any standards we use to measure sin is inaccurate. (laughs) Whatever device you come up with to measure how much progress you're making in holiness, my dear friend, Your measurement tool, your instrument is inaccurate. It's off. It doesn't register accurately. Of course, this is true of the unregenerate mankind. But I wonder how much of the remnant of sin still affects my thinking. For example, in Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not one thought that an unsaved man generates is pure. It's all corrupted. Even his most lofty thoughts, they are not perfect and pure. They're corrupt. The word intent is based upon Pottery terminology. It means to shape or to form, to press. Every thought that an unsaved man thinks, even thoughts of good deeds, religious acts, is pressed and shaped by sin. They're polluted. But dear friend, my brother, my sister, my fellow comrade in faith, I fear that that is also true about us. Sin still taints my best and loftiest thoughts. Sin still corrupts my most fervent prayers. Why, sin is even involved in this message I preach to you right now. I wish, oh, believe me, I really wish it were not so. But there's enough of Michael Durham mixed in with this message to condemn me to the lowest portions of hell. Don't you think I don't know that? And believe that? I do. There's nothing that I do that's free from some pollution of sin. Even though we've received the miracle of the new birth and even though the Holy Spirit abides within, sin often manifests itself in our thoughts and our deeds, even deeds for Christ, words for Christ. Which means we always need Jesus. Always. There's never a second, never a moment in the day you don't. Tomorrow. Be here tomorrow. We'll unpack that much deeper and I hope better. But if you need any argument to prove the heinous and terribleness of sin, I think it's the terrible death of our precious Lord Jesus. Think of it. In the sight of God, sin is so black that only the blood of the Lamb, the precious Son of God, is sufficient to cleanse it. I could have a thousand lifetimes to do the work of the ministry and that would still be insufficient because all that I would do would still be polluted and tainted. There was only one cleansing agency in God's creation. And it was His Son. His holy, perfect, gorgeous, precious, beautiful Son the Son of His image. The perfect image of God. When I look into a mirror, I don't see perfection. (laughs) Far from it, the older I get. I don't see beauty. I don't see symmetry. But when God sees Himself, He sees His Son. Symmetrical and proportionate in infinite ways. Precious indeed to Him. And that was the only thing in God's creation and beyond in the uncreated realm of God's existence that could deal with your sin. And how do I think that by my prayers and service and sacrifice that somehow that justifies me and makes me acceptable in the sight of God? We don't have the vision needed. Oh, God help us. We don't, Father. We just don't see clearly. We have poor sight. We have myopia of the Spirit. We don't see the awfulness of our sin. And the only thing that's going to cause us to see it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. One day, when we see Him as He is, Because when we see Him as He is, we will be changed and made like unto Him. And then we will see the difference. The radical difference. What will be like the moment after death or after our Lord's return when for the first time we see just how vile we were, not just before we were saved, but here today, August, July 28, 2023. My dear friend, there's enough of sin to you to banish you to the place of devils. Come now. Wake up from this delusion that you are righteous in your performance No, in your best day you are vile. Vile. We will exclaim as the Queen of Sheba seeing the wisdom of the Wealth of Solomon, the half was not told me. You know, George Whitfield, it is reported that he said, The anthem in heaven will be, What hath God wrought? What hath God wrought? Look at what he's done. My friends, we were dead to sin, but sin is not dead to us. It still entices, deceives, and gains a foothold in us. Look at Romans chapter 8. The chapter of our text, verses 12 through 14. Paul contrasts those according to the flesh versus those according to the spirit. And he says to the Christian if you're really a Christian, here's how you can know there's a holy jealousy in you that is fighting for the honor of Christ and your own conformity to Him. There's something in you. Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Oh, no, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Ah. He doesn't put the word if, meaning conditionality. If doesn't always introduce conditionality. If you do this, then this is true, or this will happen. The word if here can literally be translated since to live For since you live according to the flesh, you will die. But since by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, ah, you will live. He is not giving a command. This is an indicative statement. He is stating a statement of faith. Here's the Christian, the one who by the Spirit is putting to death the deeds of the body. He knows sin still remains within Him. She knows her own heart and she doesn't like her heart. It often brings her to the... Moments of grief and crying out, Oh, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. But she doesn't just stay there. No, no. He doesn't just fall down and grovel and, and f- in self-pity. No, no. He gets up. She gets up. She puts on the armor. And she unsheaths her sword. And she begins what I call the fight of faith. The fight of faith. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, the new energy source, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, he and she does battle against the deeds of the flesh where sin is manifesting itself and kills it. Kills it. for Verse 14, This proves he's trying to describe and give assurance to the true Christian. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now friends, there's no one who would like to take verse 14. No one more willing to take verse 14 and say, see, see, there's personal subjective guidance than me. Because I still believe God personally subjectively guides I come under great criticism of having that position and I'm willing to endure that because I believe it and I believe I can support it through the Scriptures. But verse 14 doesn't mean that at all. It has nothing to do with God telling you to take this job or not take this job. It has nothing to do with God calling a preacher to go to a certain church and pastor it or not to pastor It, it has nothing to do with that kind of guidance. It has everything to do with verse 13 that if you are by the power of the Holy Spirit put into death the deeds of the body, that is the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and every Christian has it. What does that look like? Is it perfection? No. A thousand times no. Because sin still remains in us and corrupts everything we do. It's not perfection. What is it? It is a dissatisfaction with your own sin and an awareness thereof that you will agree with God. That is unclean and vile. You are right. I am wrong. If we agree with God, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You said you misquoted that. It's if we confess, but that's what the word confess means. It means to to some degree, think and feel like God thinks and feels about your sin. That's what the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is constantly working in us, even when you're not aware of it. And so Paul would say in Romans 6, verse 12 and 13, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Don't do that. Well, how can he say that to someone when like gravity, the law of sin and death rules and has dominion? He couldn't. But it no longer has dominion. You're free, brother. You're free. That means, dear Christian, when you sin, you choose to. Not because you have to. My dear sinner friend, he must sin. He has to sin. That's what he wants. But when you and I sin, it's not because we have to. It's not because we must sin. It's because we choose to. So what's the conclusion? Am I saying that the Christian is sinless? No. That he's perfect? No. John warns us of that, does he not? 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's what it means. You need to correctly diagnose yourself and see that you are still loathsome in and of yourself. Because in the sight of holy God, there's still corruption. You're not as holy as you think. I'm not as holy as I sometimes think. I get an answer to prayer and I think, well, I'm tempted. I sorry, Nate, to disappoint you, but I'm sometimes tempted. Man, I got faith, I got an answer. And I just sinned. I did no more no less what Moses did in the wilderness. When God told him to speak the rock, he struck it twice and said, why must we fetch you out water for you rebels? We, meaning Aaron and he. He took the credit. (laughs) So let me wrap this up tonight for us. I'm telling you, if this has made some sense, and if it hasn't, I'll be glad to stay and answer questions. And if we have to leave at a certain time, I'll go outside in the parking lot and answer your questions. I'm saying to you that our struggles in our faith, in our assurance, in our joylessness, in our, in, in our struggle with sin, in the fight, and often losing giving in to tempt all of our spiritual ailments are due to a misdiagnosis. We just simply don't believe what God has said is true about Him and true about our sin. We just don't diagnose our sins. We cover up our sin and recite to ourselves that we're justified by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And therefore, we excuse our sin using the truth of the gospel to do it. Now, is that not corruption? Is that not perversion? Well, I don't know what else to call it. We're not guiltless before God. And my dear friend, you are still accountable for your sins. Grace has canceled the debt. And you are free to do as you please. And when you choose to disobey God, that is lawlessness. And though you're not under the dominion of the law, you are under the character of the law, which is Jesus Christ. All of those commandments simply tell you the heart of God what God is like. Paul said he was not a man that was not out from under law. No, he was under the law of Christ. He said all of the commandments, all of the law pointed to Christ, and therefore Christ is my standard. In justification, And in sanctification. This idea that Moses points you to Jesus for uh, justification and Christ points you back to Moses for sanctification is absolutely ludicrous. It's wrong. Christ is both the standard of justification. Praise be to God. It's His righteousness by which I'm saved and His alone. And He is what holiness looks like and the law of the Spirit of life is energizing, working in me, yes, not as quickly as I would hope, not as powerfully as I would pray, but He's working in me to conform me to the image of His Son. And that, my friends, is salvation. So, listen carefully. Either we diagnose our condition biblically, according to the Gospel, which again, tomorrow... And Sunday, you will understand what that means, how to do that. Until then, until we understand that and can really live the way we will show you in the next two sessions, you're going to diagnose your condition one of two ways that you're not performing good enough, you're not doing good enough, and therefore you struggle believing that you're really His. Or you conclude that you're no longer under sin and therefore under grace and you're already holy without any spot or stain of sin. Now some have called that cheap grace. Others call it once saved, always saved. But no matter what you call it, it is the flesh and it comes from the same root as legalism. Lawlessness and legalism are the same because they come from the same root. It's the root of unbelief in God. It's the lie that Paul is referring to in Romans 1.25 to exchange the truth of God for the lie. You see, sin manipulates the flesh to believe the lie about God. What is the lie? Are you listening? Would you please say amen if you are? I know I've made you think a lot tonight. I've challenged some norms and mores, religious convictions of some of you. I've challenged you and you've had to think and I'm stretching you. And some of you have been listening trying to rebut my arguments and find the correct objection that it will overthrow my arguments. Please listen carefully. This is the most critical part. What is the one lie, the lie, singular? And here it is that God is not as good as He claims. And therefore, you can't trust Him. And every good Christian would say, that's not me. I know God is good. We often say one to another, God is good. And what's the reply? All the time. See, you've said it before, haven't you? You knew it. But in our hearts, there lurks even though we're not unwilling willing to acknowledge that there lurks a distrust. A distrust. He's unfair to ask you to obey Him. He's, a, he's hard to please. You never can quite see the smile, the upturn of the lips in pleasure over you. He just seems to be stern and hard and demanding and asking of you that which is a burden to do. Obedience to Him if you go down that route. No joy, no peace, no happiness. And so the person, and there's only two types of persons born, all under sin, all in Adam, but there's two brothers here. One's a prodigal, the other's an elder. There's two kinds of flesh out there. The person whose flesh is of the rightarian nature. Last night's message. The elder brother in the story of Luke 15. He hears that and he says internally to himself, God can't be trusted so I better take matters into my own hands. If I'm going to find joy, I've got to do better. I've got to be better than the average. I've got to do good more than most. I've got to achieve religious success. And if I do, then I can be sure I have eternal life. How many of you are on that endless merry-go-round? Yes, you can even be saved and on that merry-go-round. Truly saved by faith, but somehow the flesh has risen. Tomorrow's message. Got to be here tomorrow. Tomorrow, I can show you through the scriptures, not opinion, not ideas, not philosophy, that this can happen to good Christians, mature Christians because that's the way their flesh is bent. The person whose flesh is of a lawless nature, the prodigal, he hears that God can't be trusted, that He's not as good as He says He is. He goes the opposite direction. He rejects all commands and duty to obey. He may even profess faith in Christ, but they still put faith in a grace. Now listen carefully in a grace that can only forgive them of the penalty of sin, but not the power of sin. So what they believe is this. I'm saved by faith, by grace. Yeah, I'm never going to be perfect. I'm just still a sinner saved by grace. And therefore, oh, it doesn't really matter because grace takes care of it. I'm telling you, all of you, all of us, are of one kind of the flesh or the other. Legalistic. Legalistic. Or lawless. And the lawless kind of quote unquote Christian, because you were born this way. This is the bent of your flesh naturally. And so there are Christians who are of the lawless bent. They want to make much of justification and they want to talk down sanctification. Oh, now, brother, be careful. Be careful. You're getting into legalism there. You say we ought to be holy, but listen, none of us are holy. You ought to know that. None of us are holy. We're still tainted with sin, and therefore, you know, holiness is not attainable in this life. You, if you go that route, you're adding works to grace, and well, then you know that's a problem altogether, its own. You've got to be careful. And so they dismiss Hebrews 12.14, pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. They dismiss half of Hebrews because Hebrews is talking about a, a sanctifier and a sanctified people. You have just eliminated the second stage of salvation. And so what do these folks do? Here's what they do. Listen carefully. They dismiss the internal sins You know, the sins of the thought, the lust, an anger, a moment of jealousy, the internal sins. They dismiss those sins. They dismiss the sins of omission, not doing the things they ought to do, and they only recognize scandalous sins. That is the flesh. That is the manifestation of lawlessness. That is the spirit of the antinomian. And it is displeasing in the sight of God. It is not the Gospel. The Gospel comes against both lawlessness and legalism. I remember a young lady made an appointment to come see me when I was pastoring. She was in full-time ministry preparing to go to the mission field. And she came and said, I need to talk to you. And she sat down and began to weep in my chair. In the chair in of my office. And she said, you know, I know God is good. I've been taught that. I, I believe that. But I need help. Because there's something in me and I'm seeing it more and more. I just don't believe He's good to me. And she was in full-time ministry. I'm telling you tonight, that story can be duplicated a thousand times, ten thousand, hundred thousand times over in the lives of ministers. They know God is good. They would never dare accuse God of unkindness. But they struggled to believe that God would be good to them. And so they work and labor and strive to do better, pray more, serve more, and they don't know that they've been set free to enjoy Jesus and all that He's done to serve them. And others. They talk about grace, being forgiven, being justified, but they would have nothing to do with growing in holiness. Because to them, it's counter to the Gospel. No, it isn't. It is the Gospel. That God can take unholy men and make them holy and leave them in an unholy world and get them home safely and make them perfectly holy like His Son. That's the gospel. And anything else is not a gospel. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. I ask you tonight as we pray, has God convicted you of sin? Then here's what you must do according to the Scriptures. Have no pity on it. Spare it. Not in the least. Take out the sword of the Spirit and stab it and swing against it and smite it until there is victory over its enticement. And should it rear its ugly head, three weeks later, the same temptation, take out your sword again and do it again in faith through the power of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Dear friend, you can have victory tonight, but that doesn't mean you won't be tempted again with the very same temptation three weeks from now or three months from now. But if God has convicted you, God has spoken to you, He's revealed this to you, then, my dear friend, please here tonight turn. Repent and acknowledge the sin and agree with God. If God has shown you that you are laxadaisical, apathetic about your sins, you don't take your sins seriously. You justify, rationalize, excuse it away under some pretense of the gospel, and God has shown you how grieved He is, then would you too repent and turn from that and agree with God about it? Let's let God be God. And believe the truth. Father, we come just like little children who have fallen, injured ourselves. We are so weak. And we come to our Heavenly Father who will not chide us. Who will not rebuke us. You won't. You won't. You will rejoice that we're coming because we believe that You are good to receive the weak, the weary, the sinful, the broken, the hurting. You're that good, Father. You've been that way to me all of these years that I've walked with You. You've never done me wrong. You've never taken my sin and rejected me because of it. You rejected Your Son so that You could receive me when I come in faith, believing the truth and rejecting the lie. You've always been good, Father. You've never given me the back of Your hand. I've always gotten the kisses of Your lips. Open Your people's hearts tonight to receive Your love, Your forgiveness, Your cleansing, the truth that You are good. That You are as good as You say You are. Your Word is reliable. It's a Word to live by. It's a Word to die by. Bless this church. Lord, I believe if we would come back to this Gospel, the Gospel of Christ Jesus alone, in Him all righteousness Lies in Him is our acceptance in the Beloved. Then This church would be empowered. The law of sin and death has been canceled. It's the deception of sin that has harmed us, wounded us, slowed us down, caused us to digress. Tonight, Lord, we would be free. Show us the lie. May, May we see it in stark reality. That we may repent in Jesus' name. Amen. And God give you the grace to obey him.